Hiya, my name is Anna Quigley and I'd like to welcome you to our podcast by Citywide Drugs Crisis Campaign, Untold Stories. Citywide is a network of community organisations across the country, really, that are responding to the impact of drugs in our communities for the last 25 years now. This is a really important time for us in looking at the drugs issue. First of all, because we're finally recognising that the way we approach the drugs issue in Ireland is not working. And we have the Citizens' Assembly set up now by the government to look at how we should change the way we're responding. And obviously we've got the 99 members of the Assembly who are working away, doing really good work in there. But for us, it's really, really important that we're all part of this discussion, that we're all part of this conversation, because this issue, the drugs issue, it affects us all. So on this podcast... You're going to hear from people. They're all people who are active in their communities as a result of their own direct experience around drugs. And that could be that they use drugs themselves, it could be a family member used drugs, or it could be just because they've seen the impact overall that drugs have in their community. And they're all people who want to bring about change as a result of their own experience. So we think these are really important stories. We'd like to really thank the people who are telling us these stories. And the stories that you hear on this podcast, they will be anonymous And that's because the current policy that we have, unfortunately, shame, blame, stigma and criminalisation are all part of that policy. So you'll understand that this can be difficult for people to be identified. So, can you tell me a little bit about yourself? The life story, is it? Yeah, Yeah. the life story. The life story. Okay. well, I'm, I'm 68 now. I'll be 69 in a couple of weeks. So that would be a long story. I was brought up in uh, Dublin. I was the oldest of seven. I suppose it was kind of that thing of I was in charge of everything, ruler of the world. Huh? And uh, I suppose I grew, I grew up all the north side of Dublin. I lived in different places around and I ended up in my own council house. And a uh, good place the kids used to go out and play and we all had a bit of laugh and whatever. We'd be out running street parties and sweeping the streets and whatever. It doesn't happen anymore. Just as time went on and the kids were getting older, we had uh, ecstasy coming into the area and uh, they were smoking heroin to get asleep at night so they could go to school the next day. They didn't really know that they could get addicted to heroin. Nobody knew. We didn't know anything about any of that. This was probably the 80s, the late 80s. And did you see a lot of that around you? You know, the people close to you? Bit by bit. I didn't really see it at the start, but bit by bit I started to see different things happening. It just uh, the kids changed, the whole vibe changed. And we put it down at first to teenagers, you know. Their teenagers were, were losing the run of them now. Yeah, bit by bit you started to see the, the weight loss, the gone faces, that sort of stuff. And eventually, like a member of my family was involved with taking heroin and then one of my kids was involved mm. as well with taking heroin. So I took a big interest then. Yeah. And I went looking, I went to my family doctor looking for help. And sure, they wouldn't touch it. Had them for years, but they wouldn't touch it. Now, didn't know anything about it either. And do you think that was, they just hadn't a clue what to do? Or was it a judgment involved in that as well at the time? I would say both, a bit of both. I'd say they had no expertise around how they would handle it and that they they didn't want, yeah. you know, uh, coming to their offices. They didn't want to lose their other patients. Yeah. The community response, I suppose we found out it was a year to wait for a, a place in Trinity Court. And we decided to set up a campaign in the area 
which I became involved with, to try and campaign for services for yeah. people taking drugs in the yeah. aid. It was nothing. We campaigned for six or seven years and we had the HSE out meeting with us and all that sort of stuff. But uh, eventually, like, the, the rabbit report came out and the local drug services, uh, the local drug task forces yeah. were being set up. And I suppose we'd made enough noise to, to ensure that we got a local drug task force in our area. So that was a real example of community action. Yeah, we were uh, we we marched, we walked, yeah. we uh, we met with the HSA, we sent letters, we campaigned, we we had articles in all the local newspapers. We did everything to have a voice heard, you know. We met with the local people that were using drugs also and found out what their needs were and you know, we just did a, a an almighty look into everything and a campaign, you know, a pressure group more yeah. or less, you know. <laughs> You know, we were delighted to get a local drug task force. And it was back in the day when a local drug task force was a great thing because it was meant to put the community and the state services together so that the people who knew what was going on in the area and the people who presumably knew how to uh, impact on that all met together and discussed what was going on and uh, that actions would come from that. And and actions did. We had community drug teams. We had uh, rehabilitation places. We had we had a lot of stuff came from uh, different services, uh, drop-in services. And can you tell people listening, right, why the community-based services are so important and what they bring that might be different to a different type of service? What what okay, were they designed so, like? So I'll describe what our community service was like. We had a place you walked in the door. Somebody would say, ah, hello, can you take your name, maybe. You could say Mickey Mouse if you wanted to. And uh, you could come in and somebody would offer you a cup of tea. And if you hadn't eaten, you might get a bowl of stew or cornflakes or beans and toast or whatever you might fancy that you might eat. And in the fridge, there would have been maybe yogurts and stuff like that, healthy stuff, but for people who weren't eating regularly and properly. And then you might have, they might have a bag with them. They could put their washing in the washer dryer. And they might be able to go and have a, a, a little shower. Yeah. And while they were doing all that, if they have kids with them, the kids would be fed. They would also be in childcare. And in childcare, they'd be playing their games and whatever, but they'd also be minded by expert childcare workers who would be able to make sure the children weren't being impacted too badly by what was going on in their families. Then if they wanted to make a phone call, somebody would help them to do that. They would either let them use the phone or would help them and support them in what they might say when they got on the phone. If they were looking to go to court, they might want a letter. Some people would say you don't write a letter for somebody who's never been to your service, but people going to court without a letter, they're already disadvantaged going to court because they're drug users and because they're, because they're northsiders even. You know, the disadvantages are there. To go with a letter is better than going with none. So a letter to say, say from our service, that uh, this person is suitable for treatment here and has an appointment for such and such a day. Yeah. So they're linking in. Yeah. Yeah. So they're the things, and there was a needle exchange where they could get clean uh, injecting equipment uh, and that somebody would, I mean, the, the, the... have a look at the abscesses and recommend them go to hospital and know their name and know how many sugars they took and know their families yeah. from the area and welcome them and like them and listen to them. Uh, it sounds, it's really low threshold, which are the things you only ever really get 
in maybe town in the inner city or you know that people have to travel to but no one's going to know your name they're not going to know your family they're not going to and not everybody obviously wants to go local but I think when people do that should be such a warm hug for people to be able to walk into shouldn't they it really is I mean there was competitions between clients there to say I was one of the first here I was one of the first to meet you didn't I you know and and stuff like that and it was a matter of pride and six years since that place closed down people are still regretting that it ever closed down and saying what a brilliant place it was it seems like we need that alongside the state services or the along the continuum of care the day programs or the medical programs or all of those different things a local harm reduction open approach for people to come and just get whatever their immediate need is met and then maybe they might link into all the other services from that yeah well they would be referred to other services as needed and also advocated for for housing and for social welfare uh, support and stuff like that you know because generally people are at a disadvantage you know you've written a piece for us today uh, a really personal piece but it's it's really beautiful and I think speaks to the structural element of what we're talking about now do you want to read that and maybe we can talk about it afterwards yeah be pleased to i called it oh brother where art thou because uh that's one of my favorite films but my brothers numbered five each a little brother each went on to outgrow me i was the eldest the second ma i was in charge when ma was busy washing sheets by hand knitting polishing the doorstep with cardinal red polish doing the brasses if that went wrong, I was in trouble. I was the oldest. I should have known better. But often, I didn't know better. They all had such different persona. They encompassed quietude, daring, loudness, activity, shyness. What they all had was high intelligence, quick humour, laughing eyes, shining spirit and a lust for life. As you did in the late 60s, we played outside on the streets. Best time of day was twilight time. It was the time of spirits, bonfires, hide and seek. Street lamps lit our stage. Our play was dreamful. Our dreams were playful. Our eyes shone in the moonlight. Halcyon days, in hindsight, characterised by joy. School was unpredictable. It didn't suit all. Life began to travel different roads for our growing boys. School days back then would allow physical punishment and verbal abuse. It also involved high expenses for a large family. Some made it through secondary school or tech. Some didn't. Some found steady employment. Some didn't. There was no money, but there were opportunities to make money. Not all were legal. Cars were exciting, but there was no money. Some of the boys would uh, borrow a car, take it for a test drive. And so some of our brothers made themselves known to the Garda and the courts and the prison system. And still, to them, it was a game, a challenge, an us and them. There was always the challenge of us and them. We lived on a corporation estate. We were stigmatised from birth as wasters, below par. That was, and still is, how we were perceived by the guardians of the peace. They ruled us by breaking the rules. They assaulted us. They lied in court. They denied us our rights. My gorgeous brother, at 24 years old, was taken from us permanently by a drunk driver in a speeding van. It was his first time to come to the attention of the Garde. He was left on the side of the road to die. 
He himself was sober. He didn't drive his bike when he drank. The van wasn't a stolen van. Maybe it had been. The driver would have been sent to prison. But he killed me brother with his own van. So he just got a fine. When not under lock and key, it was party time for my brothers and their friends. Excitement. Lost time to make up. Life force. There were girls, alcohol, and the new kid on the block. Narcotics. Yeah, party time. Life as we knew it changed. Changed utterly. A terrible beauty was born. Narcotics. The equaliser. Made you feel loved, fearless, confident, just as good as anyone else. Worthy. Bulletproof, they said. Of course, it was a liar. A filthy fucking liar. I lost the brothers that I knew. They became other. My nieces and nephews lost their fathers in many ways, many times. They were loved oh so much, but narcotics and the pursuit of narcotics took priority. My brothers had full-time employment. They were chasing drugs, buying drugs, taking drugs, finding money for drugs, avoiding withdrawal from drugs, avoiding arrest, looking for help, screaming for help, screaming in pain. Their relationships shattered and faded away. They became scum. My beautiful little boys with the sparkling eyes, the bright spirits, the laughing, daring ways. They were seen as scum. I was the oldest. I should have known better. But I didn't. That's so powerful. That's, that's really beautiful. Thanks for sharing that with us. Um, All true, huh? Yeah, and you know what really, to me, just jumps out is the the innocence, the sparkle in their eyes when they were so young to how they were treated then. When they got into a situation they never could have anticipated, they never could have understood. Like you said, nobody knew. And how they were treated by people when they reached out for help as well. I know because you've spoken about that and that's... Yeah, I, I remember because uh, one of my brothers went on onto a methadone programme, which he was on for 20 years, like, before he died. And his, um, his thing to me, his sentence that he said to me about that experience was, I'm the invisible man down there. And I asked him about his care plan. And he said, what's that? What's the story with just putting someone there and leaving them there and taking their life away? Any prospects of a future? I had another brother who just felt victimized, stigmatized when he went to hospital. And so... As time went on, he just would refuse to go to hospital. And I know I was begging him to go to hospital one day and the ambulance was there and everything. He just wouldn't go. He died that day because he wouldn't go. He wouldn't go to the hospital. He said only the tea tea ladies liked him. Yeah. And actually, he was willing to put up with whatever was happening with him medically before have to face shame and stigma and judgment from people, which is absolutely heartbreaking. Yeah, and, and it just makes you furious just makes you furious to just see someone treated badly, treated, stigmatised and, and just victimised, really. Yeah. I don't think people who haven't experienced it or don't have family members that have experienced it or, you know, don't work in the sector can really understand that that is what happens. Yeah, you know? it really is, yeah. yeah. yeah I've, I've sent numerous people to hospital services for abscess, for whatever ails them and they either refuse to go because they know how they'll feel there or, or they go and they come back to me and report having had a poor experience. 
And when such a part of addiction and drug misuse is coming from a place of shame, yeah. it's coming from shame and feeling less than and a trauma. And yeah. to think that, like, what is more shame going to do to somebody? Only push them further into, yeah. you know, whatever misuse they're engaged in, or they're gonna they're gonna go for pain relief. They're gonna reach for pain relief. Yeah, to soothe yeah. themselves. Yeah, yeah, because nobody else is gonna soothe them. Yeah, yeah. Is that why community services are so important as well? That people have somewhere to come back to that at least they know. Well, they, they feel that they're liked where they go. That's a very important feeling, a very important feeling to feel that you're welcome and you're liked and the person you're speaking to actually cares about the outcome of the conversation. And I, I'm not maligning the HSE as such. Theirs is a different, more clinical way of working. And maybe a combination of both might be a very powerful thing. They're never the twain shall meet. The HSE services are... They're not convinced that the community services are professional enough. They don't see those uh, tender outcomes, those soft outcomes, to be a professional outcome. Even in terms of having a service in your community, whatever the makeup of it is, why is it so important that the community are involved in design and services? Yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a feeling of, it's like when you knock on someone's door for milk, you know, for a cup of milk. You know that person's going to give it to you without judgment. Yeah. Because that's a neighbour and they live in the same area. And you're one of us, that's the most important thing, one of us. Yeah. Do you know? And, and apart from the community getting together, I mean, the thing for somebody who's in recovery and who's working is that they feel worthwhile, they feel worth recovery, they feel worth making the effort, and they feel hopeful that they can make the effort and also that they can reintegrate into community life. Yeah. And and that's a halfway measure to be able to come to a community service to yeah. know this community is here for me. Yeah. Uh, I can come back here. I can I can be welcomed. I can be known. My children can grow up in my community. It's just it's a no brainer, really, when you think about it. It's yeah. the opposite of isolating people. Yeah. And you mentioned childcare, which comes up so often, particularly for women. So many women can't access services now because there's no child care in a specific service. What was it like being part of a service that had that there? It was wonderful. And the thing is, people go on all the time about the impact on children. But how are you going to do anything about the impact on children if you don't have access to them? So along with providing childcare so that people can engage in services, you're also providing an eye on the children and how they're getting on. And, and you know, are they eating? Are they, are they dressed properly for the cold weather? Or that sort of thing. Yeah, I can highlight interventions that are needed. It's, it really should be all in the one place, shouldn't it? Yeah, they should, yeah. So you've been involved in community activism. You've been a worker in a, in a local drug service. You've been involved in a lot of family support. You've set up family support services. You still do that on a voluntary basis. You've just read a beautiful poem for us there. You're obviously you're a writer as well. Tell us a little bit about your art and, and how you got into it, but also how you use that in line with your sense of social justice. Um, well, I suppose I got involved with the local theatre because with the family support groups, I was trying to find something different for them to get involved with to take their minds off the absolute misery that was going on in some of their families and and losing people in their families there were deaths there were bereavements so I got involved in the local theatre and and would bring family members to theatre shows and stuff like that so that was one side and I and I saw plays that I was saying god that, that would work that would that would tell somebody about what's happening because you know uh you don't always be heard especially if you have a community voice, you know, the, the L Dublin accent. That's one of the things. The other thing was uh, I was asked to write a piece about grandmothers. I uh, 
did do that and that went down very well and then I eventually used to do little poems for different church services related to family support, related to families, uh, related to people who've been lost and so I used to write little poems and stuff like that and the combination of both the writing and the, and the drama and the, it, it just opened a kind of a door for me and I was seeing the potential of trying to reduce stigma and make change and create a difference way of thinking about addiction would have been playwriting, writing pieces, performances, stuff like that. So I ended up going off to college to study drama and theatre and absolutely loved that, you know. And, you know, I've, uh, I've written a couple of plays related to people who've been involved with rehabilitation or at the funeral of somebody who's died from drugs or stuff like that. I've written some of that. I have that feeling that it's going to create change, you know. And is that what motivates you? When you see people looking down on someone, I mean, nobody can afford to look down on somebody, but when you see children being born in one area and born in another, they're not equal, nobody's equal. It says in the Constitution that we shall cherish the children of this land equally. No, we feckin' don't. Do you know what I mean? We absolutely don't. Uh, when you're looking, people who have money are more equal than people who don't, you know. Um, so if, you, if you're starting off as a baby born in one area, you're already running behind. You may never, ever catch up. You may never, ever become equal. Um, so you, you, you won't be assessed in school for your ADHD. You won't be. You know, you might be 15 again, they assess you. Then they'll put you on tablets to keep you calm. You might, uh, you might have a back problem, scoliosis. Well, they won't sort you out until you're bent over double unnecessary but hey who cares you know who cares about that you're just not equal you're not equal and then people look at you when you when you you grow older and you realize you can't beat the system and you can't get on and you and you start taking something to make you feel equal and make you feel good and they'll look down on you again and and you might you might be coming from a family where your grandfather was in the institutions of uh, industrial schools and might have been uh, a drinker after he got out of them because how how would you survive having been in them? And you know their their mothers might have been in Goldenbridge, they might have been in a mother and baby home. The damage that was done to those people, how is that going to reflect on the family as they're going along? Those families are just devastated. And then you expect people to be equal, you know, to have the, the good manners and to go to college and to get the degrees and do all that stuff. Bullshit. Don't be looking down on people. So that really makes my blood boil. And when I saw it in my own family, the way of people looking down on, on, on my brothers who were beautiful. So I, I would fight that. I don't like to see that anywhere. Not in the Garda station, not in the social welfare offices, not in the Fingal County Council at the counter. It's happening everywhere disadvantage you just get that real sense of injustice from you and they when you're talking about i mean this whole podcast series is about the people who in the face of that blame shame stigma criminalization just refuse to allow that to be normalized and accepted and i think what you're doing the art like was the theater did you you go to the theater when you were young was that like did that seem an available thing to you no never not at all no sure none of our family went to the theater we went to the pictures yeah Yeah, i was never in a theater until i was in my 40s but the power of even people listening to this podcast that may never have experienced like all the things you mentioned there they are the stories that came through your project they're the things that you're hearing from over decades aren't they actual stories of things that have happened 
the horror stories, horror stories of how people are treated. And just even down to that basic thing of sleeping on the streets. How in God's name are we allowing that? How are we allowing our people to be? And it's not because the Irish forced or anything else. How are we allowing anybody to sleep on the streets? This has to be a basic level of like, what is the basic quality of living that people are expected to have? Yeah. How do you feel you can use the art in the community? What do you want to do with with your degree and with the playwriting is it to yeah I'm kind of I'm thinking because uh, you know I do talk out I do like to talk and I do go on you know about the same stuff all the time but it hasn't changed yet so might as well keep going but I'd like to maybe do some workshops and stuff like that you know when I'm when I get my degree but I also would like to do some uh, write some plays and maybe tour them around in the places where people don't go to theatre stuff like that maybe enable people to get involved with that sort of stuff and, and interest them in the arts because I know they do uh, theatre projects in in prisons and and it works really well I've spoken to people who've been involved and they've loved being involved with drama and choir in prisons in hospitals wherever it might be and what's it like having been involved for decades and like you said nothing changes well, actually, you know, I got very disheartened there for a while because the community did come to the fore. They, they campaigned for services, they got services, they worked in services. And it's kind of fading backwards. It's like, it's like the HSE has decided enough is enough. We're not having the community anymore. And those kind of services are being victimised, I would say, and closed down. And community services, I suppose I'd like to do a bit of research on how many of those have disappeared and what has changed because those lovely things of giving someone a hug and knowing how much sugar they take and, and allowing them to be connected to their community, they don't matter in the, in the way we count results. You know, it's input, output. Wow, that's a lovely way, isn't it? That's another disadvantage, really, you know, input and output and, and community projects are being measured on the, who comes in and what the output is and how many people are cured. Now, it doesn't matter how many 20 or 30 years you're on methadone. I don't know that they count that in the HSE clinics, but in the community services, you're, you're, you're to have your numbers, your statistics. And, you know, I used to always say, like, statistics, I'd be good with figures. I could lie on statistics, no bloody problem. You know, so it's lies, damn lies, and statistics. That's what you're getting your funding for now. Yeah, and it's, it's not counting the quality of what no, the impact on one no person's quality. life. No. Yeah. People listening to this, right, that maybe haven't heard these stories before, might be listening to the Citizens' Assembly. They're hearing a lot of expert opinion, lived experience, living experience, community experience. What can people do? There's so much information actually out there. What would you like to see people do to contribute to change? That's the information age, isn't it? Yeah, we can't complain that there's nothing available to learn. Really, we need to make our voice heard in a way that the government starts to fear not getting in. That's the only way we can make things change, really. And we can change the opinion of the general population also by let them see the humanity of people who end up on drugs because drugs are a sign of being in pain. You know, and this is what we're doing. You know, you're in pain, you go on drugs and then we'll inflict more pain on you. That's the way we work. That's it's never going to work. So I'd like people to become interested. I'd like them then to raise their voices, write their letters, send their emails, come to the meetings, come out on the street when, when it went, you know, and make big noises because, well, that worked before. And only we need to make louder noises now, you know, because we have a deaf government. Yeah. <laughs> 
with all your experience, what could change people's lives tomorrow? Whether that's policy, whether that's funding, what could make real change tomorrow? Well, I suppose there's a couple of things, but there's one thing called housing first. I don't know how you can get anyone to go into rehabilitation and reduce their drug t- intake while sleeping in a sleeping bag in a doorway. So housing first, let's get everybody housed. Let's get them. Or yeah. even in a hostel. We have to be honest, people yeah, in hostels, yeah. oh, every, drugs yeah, are everywhere. All, yeah. Everybody have their own hall door. It doesn't matter if it's just a, a one bed, bed set or whatever it is, that's heaven. So that, the housing first. And the other thing I was thinking on is, is decriminalisation of drugs so that, that people are not wasting thousands of pounds of euros of taxpayer money by being put into prison for taking painkillers. You know, it's just absolutely makes no sense at all, do you know? So decriminalisation is another no-brainer. In your experience in the community, have you seen the impact of, of criminalising people for their drug absolutely, use? Absolutely, yeah. Sure, there's people that, that can't leave Ireland, really, because if you want to go to Australia or America, you have to have no drug charges on your thing. And it would be small amounts of drugs. I, I, I don't mind if somebody who's importing tons of stuff and making loads of money is criminalised. I don't mind that. But people who are just drug users using a small amount of drugs for themselves. And also the thing of just getting jobs even, never mind travelling, you know. Yeah, it being held against somebody their whole life. Yeah, yeah. 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 need serious change. Actually, the only place people with a drug record can get jobs is generally in a drug project. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and funnily enough, then, other social services where they'd be the perfect person to be in that role, they're being blocked yes. because of the uh, a drug charge, yeah. Thanks so much for sharing all that with us today. Your poem particularly was so beautiful, and I think you really communicated the importance of community services and why we need to be listening to people in the community. Is there anything you want to leave people with that you'd love them to understand? Just an understanding that they can walk away with that they might not have had before they listened to this podcast. Well, I suppose I'm hoping my little poem did that, that made uh, our kids, human kids, uh, they mightn't be equal, but they're all the same. They're all children with hearts and, and dreams and hopes. And, and sometimes life is too tough. You know, and it's more likely to be too tough in a disadvantaged area, which is why there's more drug use in those areas. And, uh, you know, just to, to look at the person. I've seen people with abscesses up and down their arms, and I know from their stories that they had a worse time. They were abused, and they were victimised, and they were neglected, and they weren't loved. And you can see it in the amount of drug use they have and in the scars they inflict upon themselves, you know, and it's just so very sad. So I suppose I'd say look twice. Don't just look at somebody and say, oh, Jesus, you know, look at the state of him. Well, the state of him is is in direct proportion to the hurt he's had, you know. So just look at that, look twice. That's what I say to you. And most of all, thank you for sharing your story with us today. I'm sure I speak for everybody listening to say that it's been really impactful. And thanks to everybody listening at home. This has been an episode of Untold Stories, an Alfonso Film production on behalf of Citywide Drugs Crisis Campaign. Hosted and produced by me, Claire O'Connor, working with Anna Quigley of Citywide. Graphic design by Ben Clancy. Sound editing by Kieran O'Connor. We want to have these conversations out in the open where they should be had. We want to work towards ending shame, blame, stigma and criminalisation. And we really believe that these conversations are a part of that. So if you haven't, please go and listen to the other four episodes in this series. Share the podcast, talk to your friends, have these conversations and thanks for listening.